Hi guys. Hi everyone. Hello. So welcome to our second episode of The Other Side of the Atlantic. Um, Rebecca, how was your week? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm so happy it's Friday. How are you, Shadi? I'm good. I'm also equally happy it's Friday. I went out yesterday um, to celebrate the upcoming weekend. Um, I went to Trader Joe's and I felt like the most pathetic single person ever. I went and bought <laughs> just the things that were on my mind that I wanted to eat. So I've been on a diet for like the past few weeks. And I was like, I'm just going to splurge and get some, some fun stuff. So I got chocolate. I got wine and I got myself some flowers. And the guy Amazing. The guy must have thought that I was like the most pathetic single person ever. <laughs> like, buying all the things. <laughs> buying I all love the things that. that I Good for you. <laughs> no, I love that. Self-treating. Yeah. yeah, but it was nice. It was nice. How was your week? And oh, how was your date? You never told us. You're supposed to give us an update. Oh yeah. So um my date was fun. So it was the mm. Instagram date. So it wasn't yeah. actually like a face-to-face date. What it was was that someone set up an Instagram live chat and she made us all give in profiles of ourselves. So Rolake, um, describe yourself in a few sentences, describe the kind of guy you would want to be with, tell me what your deal breakers are, and then the girl read out everybody's profile and then she asked us to choose um a profile that we would want to meet so it was it was really funny or it was really funny like 35 people or so dialed in oh wow and yeah yeah so people had really silly profiles so i had fun did everyone want to chase after the guy with the british american passport was it <laughs> oh did i just you already you did but i want you to tell us on the chat oh <laughs> oh gosh okay yeah so when they read out my profile they're like oh that she grew up in the uk like lots of people in the chat were like ah connect me with the red passport connect me with the red passport <laughs> it was just like really silly so we're all just cracking very silly jokes so no one took it very heavy it was very light-hearted and i was not matched with anybody in the oh. end I, I did not choose anybody but it was a lot of fun um, how how was your turmeric mask? Oh, it was good. Um, I actually put it on for the first time yesterday um, because I do have a lot of different things that I use for my skincare routine. So I'm very careful about spreading things out. Um, and it was really good. So I, I kind of noticed the difference this morning. Um, but then also I use a lot of different products. So I'm not sure if it was that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> It was nice. Um, I put it on. You put it on for 10 minutes and it dries and you wash it out. So I'll probably have more of an update um, in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, it was, I liked it. Great. So this week, um, we're going to talk about all that's been going on um, globally, really, with the uh, marches and the protests um, against the police brutality and the death of George Floyd. Um, But before we get into that deep topic, we actually want to start off with something a bit more light. So we're going to push our What I'm uh, section to the front of the the podcast, and we'll get into the discussion on George Floyd and racism um, later after that. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're now going to go into our section called What I'm. 
So we're going to tell you about what we've been up to. So Shade, why don't you kick off? What have you been reading this week? So I am still reading The Girl with the Louding Voice. I'm about halfway through now. It's getting better and better. Highly recommend it. Um, but I just recently have purchased another book um, that I will read next. It's called I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying, Essays by Bassi Ikbi. So Bassi Ikbi is a Nigerian-American poet. And I've been following her for a very, very long time. Um, so I'm really excited to read her book. I will read that next. Um, she was on Def Jam Poetry, um, which was a TV show on HBO a few years ago, more, more than a few years ago. Um, but I'm a really big fan. So um, I'm excited to read that next. What are you reading? There. Um, I read this a few months ago, but I'm going to share it it today because it's the same thing that I've been watching so um it's little fires everywhere so it's a show that's on Netflix right now um I read it actually I read it last year because I remember I was in the states when I picked it up in a bookstore um in West Village um it's a book by Celeste Ng she's an American um Vietnamese um writer and yeah, it was it was really, really excellent. It just took me into the mindset of a young um, Asian American um, family because it's written by this Asian American. And I guess if people have read the Netflix or watched the Netflix show, I mean, you'll know what it's about. But it's basically about um, a mom and her daughter moving to a new neighborhood that's predominantly um, white and extremely traditional. And it's just about how they um, settle in or more like don't settle in there with the new community. So what have you been watching? I ran across this movie on Amazon Prime. It's called, it's a Hindi movie. In Hindi, it's uh, it's called Tapad. Um, but in English, it's called The Slap. So a very short synopsis of the movie, it's about this Indian couple, relatively young, um, probably in their late 20s, early 30s, recently-ish married. And he, um, they live in Mumbai. They're pretty well off. He's more well off than her, but she solidly comes from a middle-class family. Um, he gets a promotion to go to London. And, you know, they've been talking about this, going to London. And at the celebration party at their house, his boss comes there and his boss basically tells him that when he goes to London, he's actually not going to be running the office, that they're going to put a, a basically a white man in charge um, because they want, oh, no. yeah, they want the, they think that European investors would prefer to have like a white man in charge. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, yeah. So <laughs> he gets mad and starts yelling at the boss and the wife tries to calm him down. And in her trying to calm him down, he regrettably doesn't realize what he's doing, but he basically backhands her in front of everyone. E, and that's why, drama. And that's why the movie is called a slap. So the slap. Yes. Because <laughs> he slaps her in front of everyone. I love it. And I, I, <laughs> I'll give a little bit away, but I won't give everything away. But she basically leaves him and everyone is basically telling her, it's one slap. Are you crazy? Like you live in a you live a picturesque life. You're going to London. Like, it's one slap. And, and it was a mistake. It was a mistake. But she's like, if he's willing to slap me once, then he's willing to slap me, slap me twice. Um, wow. It's, it's really about the fallout from that. So highly recommended. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So what have you... Well, you've been watching Little Fires Everywhere, right? But I think you're watching... Yeah. Other so, 
Yeah, but I'm just finishing Little Fires Everywhere. I'm really underwhelmed by the show. I am disappointed. I'm upset because the book was like one of the best things I read last year. So I just want to talk about how I'm just not impressed about how they made it into a subpar Netflix show. Hmm. It's actually not Netflix. It's on Apple TV. Mm-hmm. It's a Reese Witherspoon show, and I love her. Um, so and she's very good in it. Um, and it's got Kerry Washington as well. And her acting is just upsetting me, you know, as usual. Acting? Yeah, I don't like it. What do you think of her acting? She's not the best actress. And I like her a lot. <laughs> Just being polite. I love her. I like her. I think she's beautiful. I like her, but she irritates. Um, so yeah, I'm not loving the show, but I, I'm finishing it tonight. So I'm on the last episode. Um, I'm not going to share my other show. Okay. I'll tell you about that another time. So tell us, what have you been buying? So I I bought a $27 wig. So I watched the YouTube um, video and this girl Amazing. had a $27 wig and it looked beautiful. It's synthetic hair. Um, but I bought it. It's from Hair Stop and Shop. It's the Jody wig, and I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a short, nice, curly wig, um, and it's something that you can wear. I mean, it's definitely not like for long term wear, but if you just want to go out to the shop or you want to go on vacation, like a nice little, cute little curly wig. So I, I really, really like it. <laughs> I saw a picture. You look so cute in it, and, like perfect summer hair. And it's twenty seven dollars. You can't be that. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot go wrong. I'm telling you. You cannot. What have you been buying? Uh, so I actually bought a closure for my wig. Ooh. It's arriving soon. It was certainly not twenty seven dollars. <laughs> it was pretty expensive. <laughs> well, you know I'm a kind of one wig gal, mm-hmm. so for me, yeah, I consider it an investment. But the main thing I've been buying is I bought um some eyebrow shading. So Ooh. I got my eyebrow shaded. Yeah, I did it on Tuesday. Um, at Refinery Beauty Lounge in Lecky, and my eyebrows are popping. They look so good. It didn't hurt too much, so I've been delaying it because I was afraid of the pain, pain. but it didn't hurt too much. It did hurt a little bit, and um, I spent a long time choosing the shape with the um, with the therapist, or I don't know what you call the person who does it, but um, so the shape is like spot on, and there's a healing period of six weeks, so oh, I just wow. have to wait. Um, for it to be fully healed and stay out of the sun but I'm really pleased with it so I saw it um, and I think it looks yeah. great I think the shape now that you said you uh, spent time picking the shape I can certainly see that I think it's perfect for your face thank you because yeah you know there's so many shapes there's like Korean style where the length is longer and the like arc is towards the outside of your face anyway I became a little bit you know of an expert on it in the week where I had to choose the shape but it's basically about lifting your face and opening up your eyes um so what have you been listening to i've been listening to one of my favorite um nigerian artists his name is brimo um and he ha- i love him yeah, he has a new album it's called the yellow album and there's a song the title song is called black man black woman and i absolutely love it so it reminds me of kind of like a fella song it talks about like social things it talks um i i just love him i love how he he doesn't speak in pigeon but i think he speaks like i don't know i just i just love the way his music comes across i'm a huge fan and i really just like mm, i like, the- like very casually colloquially yeah, absolutely. So I like the album, but it, that's probably my favorite song, The Black Man, Black Woman. Um, yeah, huge fan of that. Oh, tonight. Yeah. 
Well, that is all right. Yeah, that is it for this session. Um, We're going to go into our next session now, but we're going to take a short little break and we'll come back. So welcome back um, to the wild card section. Uh, This week's wild card is titled, I want that old thing back. So we're going to be discussing dating your ex um, or dating an ex. We're going to be talking about the pros and the cons, as well as our individual experiences with dating an ex. Um, And uh, we're going to give some advice um, on visiting old relationships and kind of tools and tips to make it work um, the second time around. (laughs) So um, I will start with the pros of dating an ex. Um, I think the biggest pro is the fact that you guys are familiar with each other. So you guys have already know your favorite color and your favorite food and um, names of your pets long gone, <laughs> um, family and all of that. So I think um, you don't have that awkwardness and that kind of learning period of a relationship. You guys kind of already know all the in, ins and outs and you can kind of expedite the relationship or just kind of pick up on where you've started the last time. Uh, Another pro, uh, I think, in dating an ex is that if it's been enough time, if enough time has passed um, and enough experience has passed, you guys are hopefully more mature um, than you were before. So if it's an ex of long gone, like 10 years ago, um, the person that you were 10 years ago isn't the person that you are now. Um, And that's both positive and negative. Um, But I also think maybe if it's just been a year or two, the kind of... um, the kind of ill will or whatever that caused a relationship to end back then, maybe it's kind of healed and you guys are ready. Um, so I think maturity has a lot to do with the relationship working, hopefully the second time around, if you guys are both at a better place in your life. So like, what do you think some of the cons are when it comes to dating an ex? Yeah, I think generally it's usually a negative situation. <laughs> so um, I think there are a lot of cons, um, but I think the main <laughs> problem is that you guys are, are exes for a reason. So there's a reason why you stopped dating. Whether you ended it or he ended it, there was some sort of deal breaker. Usually that meant that the relationship should end. And, you know, if that has to do with one of your characters or some incompatibility issue, um, it's unlikely that, you know, you guys have just changed your personalities since you last dated each other. So I think that is a con. Um, You know, thinking of personal experiences, I think often because of the familiarity, dating an ex is just like, it's so easy um, it's so easy to pick back up where you left off, but it usually is not like a long-term plan. There's not really an end goal. It's more like this just feels good for now. So I think that can also be a con because it's so easy and familiar that you don't necessarily um, have the clearest um, like vision <laughs> in seeing the other person's flaws. You're just so used to them. Yeah. So that, that's my view of the cons and just the ability of when you when you go back to an ex, like, you know, you pick up where you left off. There's all that um, history, um, which makes it so easy to go back there. And it also makes it hard to leave. So even when you already know that, OK, this thing is just not working. Um, it's kind of hard to be like, OK, I'm going to shut that door, um, especially when you open that door again and you know that he's still interested or she's still 
open to this, you know, it's it's kind of hard to be like, okay, I'm going to shut this door and really be open for someone new. So I'll say that's the last con. Yeah. That's it for me. Yeah. So um, we're now going to share our experiences, if we have any, (laughs) um, on dating exes and kind of what happened. Um, So we are both single. So clearly um, it didn't turn out well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I will start. Uh, There was a particular person. um, We will call him T, um, who I more or less dated on and off for like two and a half years. And I actually like, feel kind of stupid because this was like two and a half recent years <laughs> maybe if I was like in my early 20s and thir- or mid 20s I can say ah, I did that in the past but no this is very much recent two and a half years <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. is he Nigerian remind me he is Nigerian um, okay yes uh, so yes T and I met shortly after I came back in- to the US I came back in 20 20- from Lagos so I came back in 2017 um, summer and I met him in fall of 2017. Um, so yeah, so we dated on and off for two and a half years and it was like we would date each other and then date other people and then go back to each other. And I think one of the reasons um, that we went back to each other, it was very natural, um, especially having like in between him, I had like kind of pretty terrible experiences with other people so I'm like if I know that this person um everything always is safe yeah and everything always seems to click not only that he was safe but he was like my guy like everything clicked Mm. um well mostly everything clicked um so then and then also coming off bad relationships you're like why would I put myself back out there if um if this thing works with this person consistently um but again as much as we got along and as much as um we really liked each other the same problems persisted the same problem persisted um and that problem on for me not for me but the problem that I had in the whole relationship was the commitment I think that it was okay I felt like the other person felt like um it was okay as it was and they would be okay if it was like this for the next 15 years with really no progression. I'm a very much in my thirties now. <laughs> I'm a very much marriage minded person. I want to have kids within the establishment. Okay. So he was happy with just coasting. Just like, coasting. Yeah, so- just coasting. And really um, not wanting to. No end goal. I'm sorry. No end goal. No end goal. And my end goal in dating, I want to be married. I want to have kids within a marriage um and um a lot of Amen. yeah a lot of that had to do with maybe his prior experiences so he was a few years older than me he was about five six years older than me and he had been previously married um so I think that past trauma is <laughs> in his case it was trauma of um <laughs> of a marriage not working out and not wanting to do that again which is understandable but again I know ultimately what I want um in a relationship I'm in really outside really in life so that was a big non-negotiable and it didn't change so first first go around that was the issue stop talking second go around that was the issue stop talking so it never changed um and I just knew that something it was something that was non-negotiable for me, and it's something that I um, I couldn't put up with. And as much as 
the familiarity of him and the comfort of him and we got along really well. It's probably one of my my most drama free relationships. And I mean we're we aren't we don't talk now. Um like we don't talk um as friends now. Um uh, but I know if I ever needed anything from him and vice versa, um we could do it. Uh we could um we could rely on each other for that. So Mm. I'm proud of you. Well done, you. Thank you. Did you have anything to say? Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. Just (laughs) good on you. (laughs) Okay. So what about you? Do you want to enlighten us on your experiences with dating an ex? So, Malaka, do you want to share your experience um, on dating an ex? Yeah, for sure. Uh, So have I ever dated an ex? Yes, in the affirmative. So definitely, like, you know, when I was a lot younger. um, But you're young um, now. So so. like, (laughs) this is so true. I'm so young and free and fresh. But um, (laughs) so like, um, yeah. So like when I was in university, um, the person I had dated before even going to university we like both ended up in universities in different countries. He was in the States and I stayed in England. Um, and we, you know, we split up at that time. However, as we both like entered college, did our own things, you know, dated people. I dated people in my university in England. But anytime we came back home to Lagos, it was like, okay, let's just go back to where it was. Um, so um, with him, it was like, we just always would go back to just what we were used to regardless of what had been happening when we were both away at university and it was funny because it wasn't like we actually stayed in touch when we were both at university we didn't I am we didn't call each other we like lived our own lives and I was like I am I am over this guy (laughs) however when we now saw each other again during the holidays in Lagos it would just pick up right where we left off um like just spending a lot of time together and I think that familiarity and then, you know, not really like cutting the cord means it was just easy for me to go back. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of carried on like, like first year of university. And I remember like my first summer of university, I went to the um, States for the summer on this um, Work America program. And I remember going to visit him at his place in New York and like I was there I was having like the summer of my life like enjoying myself I went with a really good friend from England um it was a great summer and I was not thinking oh my gosh I miss him or I, I can't wait to see him Mm-mm-mm-mm. it was just like I was enjoying my summer however when we now saw each other and I like went over to his apartment it was just like okay we just kind of fell back into it um for like a, a week or so so that one was yeah kind of a strange strange one and then apart from that have I ever dated an ex yeah so I won't really call this person an ex but I had a situationship with someone pretty much from the first day of first year of university till like I don't know my third year um we were like very good friends but um it was always a bit more than that but we were never boyfriend and girlfriend and we'd both date other people and come back to each other and like even after we graduated from uni, we both moved to London, but we like would 
hang out a lot and then would like fall into this weird situationship all the time. <laughs> so with him, that was definitely like a recurring thing. Um, and it was strange because we were friends, but anytime, you know, it was just kind of the two of us would fall back into this situationship. And that went on for years and years. That situationships tend to do. That. <laughs> Very true. I think situationships is even a different topic to I want that old I'm thing back you. with my ex. Situationships is different. <laughs> but this one was a deep one because we were very, very close, you know? So, um, like, I remember one Christmas, I had to stay in England, and it was, like, my only time staying in England for Christmas. I always just come back to Lagos. And I could have stayed with any number of family members, but I um, decided to go stay with him and his family in the countryside. And it was, like, we had very, like, normal, separate lives in London, during normal times was suddenly, you know, that kind of Christmas spirit, romantic time of year, you know, we just fell back into old ways for that holiday. And then it was like back to London and, you know, peace out, back to normal. Back to reality. So I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying I advise it, but yes, I have done it. But, you know, where I am in my life now, um, very much, you know, early 30s, you know, I pray that my next relationship is my husband amen. so I'm not looking a man so I'm not I'm not entertaining exes because all my exes there's a reason why they're my exes <laughs> so no offense to anybody listening but um yeah I I have done it before but I I do not believe I would do it again I I have a very short story um on someone who wasn't an ex um, but someone I did come across in my early 20s um uh, and we were both rightfully kind of infatuated with each other but like good infatuation um and we stayed in contact for a very long time and we both again like life happens um so he we were on two different uh, continents he was actually in england um i was in the u.s and just life happened but we stayed very close um and we never dated we were just kind of um friends um and he was and he was a, a um a friend or friend of a family members um and last year I was in England um and I hadn't been in England for a really long time and I hadn't seen him in about like seven eight nine years and I saw him again and he, okay yeah, he, he's in a long-term relationship um and he, that he's gonna propose to his ex, his ex. but it was just so nice <laughs> seeing him again just kind of that familiarity um, and a part of me kind of wished it worked out because I think now looking back, the things um, that, and not, again, we, we didn't date. Um, we were both like in our 20s, weren't thinking about that, thinking about starting a career and stuff like that. But I just kind of wish like if I was like in that mindset back then, who knows? Like it could, I think it could have worked out. But the things that I think kind of, that I was like, oh, I didn't like about certain things I didn't like about him now that I'm looking at it with 30 year old eyes or 31 year old eyes <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh I know yeah they weren't that big of a deal <laughs> or could he be an option now no, he's very much happy in his relationship and I'm very much happy that he is in his relationship but kind of not regret I because I know God will always lead you to your path and to no one else's path and you know, no one's husband is meant yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> God will find your own husband. But you always have those what-if moments. Um, and he was a really good person. And it's, sure. yeah, and it's really hard to come around in your 30s. Good men. Genu- genuinely good men. 
Um, so it's always like, it's a what if. It's a what if. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're next. I hear you. Yeah, so we're next going to go into advice um, for those who are thinking about revisiting relationships um, of the past and kind of our tips for making it work the second time around. Um, and I will start um, my biggest tip and both from experience um, is to let go of past mistakes and regrets. Um, you need to start on a clean slate. Um, forget any of the things that either of you have done in the past, um, particularly the main thing that um, that caused the first Uh, the relationship to end the first time around um I remember there was someone um that I was recently dating um when I was on a break from tea (laughs) and uh, (laughs) as it goes and um when yeah when we took a break we took a short break um this person and I will call him Kay um and uh yeah and when we started back up again the thing that kind of um the thing that stopped us from or the thing that broke us up the first time um when we were having an argument over something very silly um and then he says that's why x y and z which was and i'm which was the reason that we stopped talking last time and i'm just like i thought we literally made an agreement that it is in the past and it's done i am a person where like if I'm dating someone, I like I'm 100 like let us start fresh. When we have arguments, we literally I, I remember um, a person that I had dated. Um, we had we would have this metaphorical box, and we would say it's going in the box, and we're closing the lid. Um, I love that so much. Sure. <laughs> exactly. So we had put this <laughs> thing in in the box, and it found its way out in the box again, um, and it really just kind of showed that this was a major thing. And now looking back, it's it's, it was very silly and it's very stupid. Um, but ultimately, I think sometimes God, if <laughs> when God tells you that someone is not me- meant for you and you tell God that, no, God, I think you're wrong, he will <laughs> he will um, put things in your way that will stop you from dating that person. And it's really just mm. sometimes you really need divine intervention. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So look at- <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, so we have to take this offline. Uh, but you said, okay, yes. okay. So think, um, yeah, so I think sometimes you need divine intervention. And um, yeah, so again, if you if you truly feel like um, this person is the, the person for you, um, again, um, start fresh. <laughs> and forget everything in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, I like yeah, that. Locker, what advice do you have for revisiting relationships? Um I like that. I've definitely learned something about boxes, <laughs> putting things in the box. Um, for me, as I said, I'm not really a like, yay, go back to your ex person. I think there's a reason why you ended it. But since this is meant to be, you know, good advice for trying to make it work. And actually, like, despite my own experiences of them in already working, I mean, I've gone back to exes. I think the first thing I'll say is be aware of why you are going back to that person. So make your um, decision, be self-aware, and then accept the consequences. So if you know that it's really just going to be a fling, you're not expecting, you're going to like fall in love and have a fairy tale ending, then fine. Admit that to yourself and 
accept that, okay, I'm just going back for a little bit of comfort right now, but I'm not going to let my heart get too drawn in. If you already know that this thing is not going to last, I think that's the first thing. Be self-aware and know why you're doing it and what the likely outcome will be. And then my second tip is, like, if there's a basis of friendship, like, just, you know, keep that going even when you're on a break and maybe it will work out when you try it again. So my own experiences have been very much, okay, we're just like posting when I, when I've gone back to an ex, it's just a comfort familiarity thing. But I actually have like two um, friends who have ended up marrying their exes mm. and they're both in really happy marriages. Yes. I have one friend who um, moved back to Nigeria. She had been seeing this guy in England. She moved back to Lagos and they split up. Not because of that. They just split up. And, you know, he was seeing other people she kind of was still pining after him, but she settled into Lagos. She started seeing other people. There was even someone else she thought she was going to marry. But throughout this time, and it was like two a two-year period where she was in Nigeria, he was in England, they stayed friends. And like they would confide in each other. They would share things. They would share things about the people they were both hmm. seeing. And she ended up moving back to England. Yeah. And then they started dating again. And now they're married. They got married uh, summer before wow. last. And I'm just like, yeah, and I'm so happy for her because she was always someone that, you know, like she never used to talk about him when I knew her in Lagos. Like she had totally moved on, but they always had that basis of friendship. So I feel like it, like one piece of advice would be, you know, like just maintain that friendship in the break, even if you still, if, if you think there's still an option. And then my other friend, an option of it working out, I mean. And then my other friend who's married to an ex, she was dating this guy like when she was a bit younger, like in her early, I think it was like her mid 20s. So she got married a little bit later in life. She got married at like 37 or so. Um, yeah. And so if you're listening in, hi, <laughs> I'm talking about you. But um, she, she was seeing him like in her mid 20s and we used to work with each other. And I remember you know, she'd always ask me questions and like encourage me with various people I was dating. Um, and when I would ask her, okay, who are you seeing? She would be like, you know, like kind of coy and never really share that much. Um, and then I saw her at a wedding um, in January this year and we like asked each other questions again. And again, she didn't really say much. So I was very upset when just before COVID lockdown in March, I saw pictures of her at a wedding. I was like, how come you are married? So if you're listening again, I'm still not happy that you did not tell me. Um, anyway, yeah. So with her, what happened there was that he had moved to the States after they had dated in their 20s. Um, they were even family friends. So they stayed in touch. And I think like you mentioned, Shade, it was someone that they knew each other's flaws. Yeah. So when they would reconnect, it was easy. Um, and yeah, she just never met anyone else that clicked with her like he did and she never really dated many people anyway so when they now reconnected he moved back to Lagos it was just like okay this this is my person um and with the way she said it to me when I was like oh my gosh you got married she was like yeah that you know there was just no one else that understood me like him or who could like you know make me like feel as good as he did so I feel like one piece of advice based on that experience too is you know like trust your gut so you know, don't look at it through rose-tinted glasses and pretend it was better than it was. But if there were good things there, trust your gut and, you know, give, give it a go. Um, so that's it from me. Um, we will close this section here.
and speak to you in the next section about racism. Welcome back. Welcome to the main section of our podcast today. And we're going to be talking about racism. I mean, it's the conversation on everybody's tongue in the last week since George Floyd's killing. Um, So obviously, this is very important to Shade and I as two black women. So we'll be talking about what happened with George Floyd. We'll also talk about our own personal experiences with racism um, that we have faced. Um, and we're going to also talk about how, how to take your power back or ways that we have found to take our power back as um, black women. Um, and then we're going to end by sharing some um, books we've read um, and learning um, tools, whether you're black or non-black, to learn more um, about racism. So I hand over to Shade. Um, Shade's in DC. Um, she's going to tell us more about what happened with um, George Floyd and give us a background of um, killings in the U.S. of Black people. Yes, so I'm going to talk about three of the main um, uh, police-related murders of Black people in the past few weeks that have really sparked the protest. So the biggest one being George Floyd. George Floyd was, I believe, a 46-year-old man um, who lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, And he was arrested um, on suspicion um, I believe of having a fake $20 note. I, he was trying to pay for something and there was suspicion that his money Hi. was fake. Yeah. So, so painful. Um, yeah. So um, I, the police came and they arrested him. I um, mean, in the video that everyone has seen, uh, for, he was already in cuffs. He was, he was already in handcuffs. And a <laughs> police officer proceeded um, to put his foot on someone's neck, on a human being's neck for mm. eight minutes and 46 seconds, I believe. Um, mm. And um, it ultimately led to his death. And while this police officer was doing this, there were three other police officers that were just standing there and watching. Um, and we can talk, you know, the whole episode about just that incident alone. Um, Tell me about that. Yeah, that was that was really what, and it was filmed, um, thankfully. Um, I couldn't even watch the whole nine minutes. I couldn't. Yeah, initially, um, the response from the police department in Minneapolis was to um, fire the police officers, and then they arrested the main um, officer who had his foot on George Floyd's neck, um, and then they um, arrested all of them. So all of them are now in jail. Um, the okay. main police officer uh, is charged with second degree murder and the other two are I believe charged with abetting in, in murder which also carries a longer um, prison sentence but that's that case two other cases um, Amon Aubrey was a, a black man who was running running while black <laughs> um, literally he was running <laughs> exercising um, <sighs> and these two these two uh, white men um, decided that he looked like a person who's been suspected of um, armed or robberies, not even armed robberies, robberies in their neighborhood. I wonder what their qualifications were for this man, <laughs> like maybe just him being black. So they decided to not only chase him, but execute him. And it was an execution that was called on tape. They literally just shot him. Um, and then it's been recently said in the past week that they actually used the N-word when they shot him. Wow. Um, I didn't so- hear that. Yeah, so this happened a few months ago, and it's really only when this this tape came out a few weeks ago that they were arrested. Which really just like does it as a as a responding police officer to that incident when two men execute someone else? Mm. 
you do not take them in. I just, I don't understand. And then there's also been talk I do that, understand. Yeah. And there's also been talk that the reason that it wasn't investigated prior to the, the leak of the, um, of the video was that the father, so it was a father and son that killed, so it was father and son duo that killed um, the guy. Uh, that killed the Mount Aubrey and apparently the father used to be um, a police officer so there was a lot of I guess just kind of because he's a police officer the police officers didn't want to investigate it so that is that the father father and son are still in jail and the last case is of a a black woman um, Brianna Taylor who um, was an EMT which has been designated as a a central uh, essential worker so she's out there trying to fight coronavirus what's an EMT for the non emergency medical technician. So they're the ones who are in the in the um the ambulances who okay. respond. Yeah. So she okay, yeah. I didn't know that. yeah. So she um was in her house sleeping and the I forget which state she was in, but in the state there are um something that is allowed called a no knock warrant. So whenever police enter your house, they have to um they have to have a warrant. And apparently they had a no knock warrant, so they can just enter without even knocking on your door. So they apparently suspected it was the wrong it ended up being the wrong apartment. So they suspected um an apartment in her neighborhood. They thought it was hers. Um that was I think they had dealing drugs or something related to drugs so they busted in at like the early hours of the morning and they drew their weapons and her boyfriend who was in the apartment with her drew his weapon because he thought it was a home invasion um because they didn't announce because someone is barging into your house unannounced with a freaking gun many people (laughs) multiple people were barging into her house with a gun with guns and they didn't announce themselves as police officers So so the boyfriend shot and then the police, of course, returned fire, ended up killing Brianna Taylor. I'm so, just, I'm, I'm yeah, just and, look for words. And no one has been arrested for that yet. And yesterday was her 27th birthday. So, I mean, I'm 31 and I just couldn't imagine, like, only living 27 years. Imagine if you hadn't lived, the, imagine if I hadn't lived the past four years of my life. Yeah, um, yeah. So as, as a particularly young Black woman, so a lot of these um, incidences have been focused on Black men, but as a, mm-hmm. as a young Black woman, I think that really um, kind of hurts the most because mm-hmm. she didn't get as much attention as the Black men. And obviously, no. um, obviously both all the killings were uh, egregious and, um, and very terrible. But I think that, and the fact that she was an essential worker, right? She's out here fighting coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So, those it's just three, so painful. Yeah, those are the three incidences in the past uh, few weeks. Blackie, did you want to okay. share your opinion on George Floyd? Yeah, I mean, for me, just like all these murders that have happened, they've been so painful. Um, and the George Floyd one, I think just that video, like seeing everything on tape, it's just like it's a visceral reaction. Like I just feel it to my core and... Like, as any human being, black, white, whatever, you cannot watch that video and not be just so hurt and just, you know, like you're just heartbroken when he, you know, he calls out for his mom. It's just horrible. And, you know, as for me, I just feel this so deeply, like, you know, I'm a black person um, first before anything else. That's the ident- my identity. That's what people see of me. So I see this happening to a black person and I'm like, again and again in the state, like, come on, the Ahmad Aubrey case. So someone cannot go jogging. Like, what on you. earth makes you think that you should 
um, harm someone who is jogging that because he fits the profile of what suspect? Did you even see his face? Like, it's madness. He the random profile. Of the- he fits the profile huh? because he's black. I said he fit the profile because he's black. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> and then the audacity to take it into your own hands? Like, who the heck do you think you are? You know, it's taken into your own hands. Um, so it's just shocking. And, you know, from you know, from outside the US, we've been seeing these things year after year, and we're like, what is going on? So this one is just like the last straw. So I'm I'm glad for you know, all the noise that's being made now. I just really hope there's change. But I also want to add that, you know, having grown up in the UK, it like the rest of the world is really condemning the US right now. And people are rightfully now looking at their own countries and looking at the racism that exists in their own country. So me, like growing up in England, I really don't think we should think in England that this is not a UK issue. Like I've had friends reach out to me from England non-black friends and I think for once people are like whoa like you know racism is actually real and it's <laughs> across the world because some friends reach fake. out and be like pardon I said before it was fake <laughs> I'm telling you but like I had some people be like they, they really don't quite understand what's going on and it's genuine questions but I'm like guys come on like please wake up out of this you know dream this and slumber. I read this this slumber and there's this article that Afwa Hirsch wrote in The Guardian, and she said it so well. So I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. But it's she says she's a British um, journalist, and she writes a lot about Black issues. She's a mixed-race woman. And she says the article is called The Racism That Killed George Floyd Was Built in Britain. It, was, it came out last week. And mm-hmm. she says against the UK government that, you know, they were condemning, condemning America, but they could not look at themselves. And she says... The British government could have had the humility to use this moment to acknowledge Britain's experiences. It could have discussed how Britain helped invent anti-black racism. Or how today's Britain US invented the slave trade. <laughs> like, let's even Thank take you. it back. <laughs> Thank you. So let me let me finish the paragraph, then we'll discuss it all. But I, I fully agree. So she's like, it could have discussed how Britain helped invent anti-black racism, how today's US traces its racist heritage to British colonies in America, how it was Britain that industrialized Black enslavement in the, in the Caribbean, initiated systems of apartheid all over the African continent, using the appropriation of Black land, resources, labor to fight both world wars, and using it again to reconstruct the peace. And how today, today in Black in Britain, people are still being dehumanized by the media, disproportionately imprisoned and dying in police custody, and also now dying disproportionately of COVID. So I know we're going to talk about that the second, the last sentence I read a bit later on. But everything else she starts on, like the history of what has happened in England with racism, it like it was really the birth <laughs> of Seriously. it. Also, it's really sad that yeah, and in America. You guys are taught this in school. You're taught about, you know, the issues with blacks and whites and the history. But in England, they skip it. They skip it on the curriculum. So a lot of British people, black and white, have grown up not truly knowing Britain's role in um, slavery, Britain's role in um, colonialism and apartheid across Africa and using black people to fight their world war, using black people, taking resources from Africa, looting resources from Africa, People are not taught this. So for me, this whole George Floyd thing, it's kind of unbirthed 
you know, some latent anger of why are we, why are we not talking about this anyway? And yes, it's in the past, it's history, but we cannot um, address things happening now, sometimes without um, looking um, back. And I know we're kind of short on time, um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I just have one thing um, to add before we wrap up. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, so I, so um, I, as, a, as someone who went through the U.S. school system, I agree that we did learn some things about racism, but the majority of the things that I've learned is outside of the school system because it's very much painted with rose-tinted glasses that, Yes, it was bad, but you're, there were, you know, these, you know, white saviors that came in and helped in JFK and um, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson and all these people. But one of the things that I didn't learn, I didn't, they, they didn't teach you people like Malcolm X, right? They taught you people like Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King is a, <laughs> is, is a great, great, silver, not, he's a great American hero. I'm not going to call him a black hero. He's a great American yes. hero. Um, but he's Preach. also very much... Um, on the peaceful side, which I am very, I, I align to that, but I think sometimes as black people, we do need to be angry. So as much as I hold yes. Mal- um, Martin Luther King, I also equally hold up Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, they didn't really teach us about because he, w- he was an angry black man calling for the dissolution mm-hmm. of like so many, so many American institutions. And he wasn't preaching on the basis of religion or the religion that they liked because Malcolm X was a Muslim, whereas Martin Luther King was a Christian. So I think there were a lot mm-hmm. of things that it was, yes, it was taught, but it was very much taught through white lenses and like British history, right? So like I didn't learn a, a lot of the things about British slavery and colonialism until after I came out of um, college. I only learned a few years ago about, you know, I only know about five years about, ago about, um, about Britain's history in India. Like we can talk about Africa. Yeah, let's talk about them in India yep. and, and the Caribbean and in it was Asia. worldwide. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, yeah, it's just the history of it is just all um, it's all really heartbreaking and it's a really big eye opener and it's not just these incidences but just global incidences. Um, so we're next going to talk about um, overt and covert racism um, because there are incidences of both that I think people don't realize. Um, in the U.S., we tend to be more overt with our racism. They fly their their Confederate flags and they have on their hoods. But in other parts of the world, it's more um, it's more covert. So we're going to talk about that next. One, welcome back. So in the second section of our racism piece, um, we're going to be talking about overt and covert racism. Um, so you know, two different types of racism uh, that we as Black people experience. So for example, during COVID nineteen. Um, the statistics showing that more Black people and minorities are dying, um, statistics that show that um, in the States, um, proportionately more Black women die um, during um, childbirth. So all of that stuff we would term as um, kind of covert and systemic racism that ex- just exists, and overt being more like killing George Floyd. Um, so let me hand over to Shade first. Um, Shade, can you share some experiences that um, you have experienced of um, racism? So I, um, I grew up in the U.S. Um, and I've, ex- I've lived mostly in the Northeast. I've actually only lived in the Northeast, um, but have traveled throughout the U.S. And um, I'm currently living in D.C. And D.C. is including New York City and San Francisco is really the epicenter of gentrification. Gentrification is a form of racism, plain and simple. Um, Because (laughs) 
<laughs> it really is, right? Because what you're doing is you're taking people's livelihoods, these neighborhoods that Black people have lived in with their families no longer belong to them. And it's like, I, yeah, even in, so I walk around a lot in DC, even in the night, not so nice neighborhoods, there's no Black people. So it's kind of like where these people just don't disappear. <laughs> it's not like mm-hmm. once you take their homes they disappear so it's kind of like where are these people going so that's really a form of racism um and then also many of the people in the service industries in dc are black um these industries are low paid um have in america unfortunately our um insurance is tied to our employment most of these jobs don't have um don't have insurance um, so these people are low paid, don't have insurance when they do get sick, get sick, um, and especially in a time now with COVID-19, um, where mm-hmm. most black people aren't able to, you know, work from home and you're working at these, whether it be um, delivery services or, um, you know, um, grocery stores, you're not able to um, take off and work from home. And on top of that, you um, have a higher rate of COVID infection. Um, So I think a lot of that is even classism, right? So it's not just color, but it's, you know, on the um, economic and inequality um, scale, there are more Black poor people. So there's ending up being more Black people in these positions on the front line. Yes, but there has to be the fact that there are more Black there by a percentage. So the white people are the majority in the U.S. And when you look at statistics, you always look at percentages and not raw numbers because there will always be more poor white people because there's more white people in the country. So I do agree it has to do with classism, but classism is a intersection of racism. Um, Yeah, no, I think you make a very good point. I just wanted to challenge that, you know, is this about, is it because they're Black that they're on the front lines or is it just they're poor people? But you actually, you cleared up the, what I was wondering, yeah. saying that actually in absolute terms, there's still more white poor people. So why should it be that of all the total poor people, why is it the black people who are at risk? Absolutely. So, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. And I just saw this morning um, that the total COVID deaths in the U.S., a quarter, so 25% have been black, but black people only make up 13% of the population. So it's kind of, so these things that you just yeah. kind of have to look deep into. And my last point on this is um, just being in the city, um, I just feel as though white people feel like they own, some white people anyway, feel like they own um, public spaces. <laughs> like you, you will be out and walking and, you know, they expect you to move out of the way for them. And I'm just kind of like, I, I, I am a taxpayer in the city, just like you are. Um, in in yeah it's like you feel that you feel that walking around uh, absolutely a hundred percent like i feel like and and these the city is they're very like newly here you know this city used to be a majority black like 30 years ago dc yes it was it was called chocolate chocolate city (laughs) yeah so it's kind of like you know i feel like the outsider and i you know I'm not from D.C. I'm a child of immigrants, but I think just having my black armor on me, I blend in to, um, to you know, the population. And I feel like sometimes I'm an outsider. Like if I, I, mm-hmm. I am an immigrant um, and a non-D.C. native, as I'm as much of an outsider as a, a white person who recently moved here and is also not a D.C. native. But I feel as though like they sometimes feel like they control the spaces. 
Um, so that that, yeah. is, that is my um, that is my um, my take on it. Um, like, do you want to share your experiences with covert racism? Yeah, I do. But I just, you know, something you had told me some years ago, I just wondered if you could actually talk about that first. Okay. I remember you used to tell me that going to work in the States, you know, you didn't want to do certain hairstyles. Oh, yes. And yes. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I am fully um, team natural. I have um, beautiful, natural, coily, curly hair. And um, there is a kind of um, bias, like, not kind of, there is very much a bias. I work for a mostly not even mostly almost everyone that I work with is white um and you kind of have to make yourself quote-unquote presentable um I don't wear my natural hair at work I don't even wear braids um and you know well actually when I lived in Nigeria I had different hairstyles different braids every other yeah day. you like love your hairstyles you know I, mean? I love my braids but I also know that unfortunately if I walk in as a I'm already disadvantaged because I'm black and I'm a female and then I come in here with a hairstyle that may be quote-unquote distractive um I know I'm less likely to get the job um so I yeah I, I do make sure that my hairstyles are like I wear wigs and straight hairstyles because I because unfortunately there's a bias um against how your hair looks I, it's just crazy. it is crazy it's just crazy that you feel you have to yeah. in order to get the job or to come across you know maybe less black or less different yeah. it's just it's crazy yeah. yeah okay uh so i'll share my experiences on covert um uh, racism so i think you know what shade was saying about kind of forcing yourself to fit a mold that kind of shrinking yourself or reducing the things of you that make you more black and more different. I mean, I've, I've definitely experienced that, like in places I've worked in the UK, um, like, you know, just wanting to fit in. Um, and even, you know, at university, like I went to um, Durham University in the north of England, which was like very, very uh, white, very few minorities and even fewer blacks. So in my year at Durham, I think there were on my campus, like three black people. Wow. And on the other campus, maybe more. I'm not joking, though. And this is a, this is a huge university. <laughs> so I think definitely, like, you know, I was shrinking myself. I was dressing in certain ways that I would not have done otherwise. Like, you know, there were clothes I liked. I still like my clothes, but I was definitely still trying to, you know, appear, come across a certain way, like dressing what would call in England, like, you know, a bit more raw, you know, just, you know, trying to fit in, which is like, you know, dressing a bit more posh, okay. maybe shadowy, we would use that yeah. word, but not trying to stand out too much. Um, and then, you know, like in my working life, I'll say that England is not as extreme as the States in, you know, with hairstyles or trying to not show your natural hair. Like I was really, I remember I was angry when you were telling me these things, Shade, that you couldn't, you felt like you couldn't wear braids. But I felt it when I came to America. Black, like remember, the days I wore Do you remember when you yeah, were here yeah. working? And I think you told me like, ah, that you were going to get a short wig. I'm like, well, Aki, you can't come to work with the long wig one day and a short wig. <laughs> yeah, you told me. And I was like, I can do what I want. But like, I remember going to the office and everybody was like, oh, your head I was like ah this is what Shade was saying <laughs> like in Nigeria you don't need to worry Nigeria every Monday all the women come in different looks it's amazing people embodying themselves it's great and like in England I have to say I also felt that pressure that okay don't change your head too much don't be long one day short one day I felt that in England too but not to the extent of I'm not gonna wear braids on my natural hair in England there's a bit more freedom like maybe some non-black people are thinking oh those braids 
But I, I mean, I don't feel it as much. When I was in the States, I did feel when you wear braids, you're really stamping that I am African. Like, you know, walking around Harlem, people with the long braids and corners, I, I, you feel like you belong when you put on those braids. Yes, I'm African. Whereas in England, it's like a general black thing. Like, I'm just going to have braids or hair. And it's just funny that we have to talk about hair so much. But as women, it feels you're making a statement. And as a black person, you feel like, okay, let me just fit into what um, white people expect and be more like them so I can be accepted. So I'd say that's one of my covert experiences. And then, you know, more seriously or more painfully, you know, I've had experiences in places that I've worked in England and in Denmark that I've spoken to colleagues and realized that they're earning more than me. They're doing the same job. I'm even, you know, sometimes helping people with their work after hours. And I find out that people are earning more than me. And, you know, these conversations, like, it happened actually both in both countries when I worked in um, UK and when I worked in um, Denmark. And it's just like so painful. And you're wondering, is this a race thing? Is it a, is it a sex thing? Because of course there's gender dynamics here too. And we all know the statistics that have been shouted at about women earning less, but it happens too with your color. And um, yeah, I remember my colleagues in Denmark being mad. I had this um, mixed race colleague in Denmark, and he was actually adopted into a white family um, in Denmark. Just you know, awesome guy. And the guy was so angry <laughs> on my behalf. He was like, "How can you be earning X when we are earning Y?" And Shibi were doing the same work. And you know, this is very, very painful. And then, like more recent experiences, um, my brother um, is in England right now with his family, and um, my nephew got ill in the middle of this whole COVID lockdown. It took him to a hospital, like, you know, one of the private hospitals in London that, you know, you would expect the service would be fantastic. And can you imagine my nephew, three-year-old boy was sick and the doctors refused to treat him. They were like, oh, we can't touch him or that he may have COVID, he may have this. And he was really ill. He had been ill for like um, five days. He was so stressed. He wasn't eating. His cheeks Mm. were swollen. Like, and they were like refusing to touch him. And like... Yeah, this is a three-year-old. This is my brother that has all his insurance. Like, you know... Who is a UK citizen. Really like, frightening. let's add that he's a UK citizen. Yeah, he's a UK citizen. Yes. yes. Can you imagine? Like, Shadi, it was so hurtful. I was like, would you ever deny treatment to a three-year-old white boy? How can you treat a child like this? And literally, like, my mom had to, like, take the phone and start shouting. <laughs> like, my brother had to stand his ground so much. And then again, as a black man, you don't want to be shouting in a hospital. Yes. You know, you want to, you have to be firm and say, take me seriously. I am human. My, my boy is human. But you also don't want to blow up and they now, you know, they're like, oh, this guy's making a scene. But can you imagine, like, Cromwell Hospital is a, it's a big hospital in England. And I've had experiences from friends and friends of friends giving birth in England where the nurses treat them somehow. These are even the most private hospitals in England, though where the nurses treat them badly, they rush them um, during like pregnancy, mm. they're rude. And not to say that other colors don't experience bad treatment in hospital, but the number of stories you hear, it's like if this thing is too systemic, it, it exists. People are bringing their own personal racist issues to work with them. And black people are suffering because you have some issue, you know, yourself, you racist person. Um, so yeah, those are just my own experiences and experiences of people around me. Um, so let's move on to overt race, racism. 
which or which happens less in many circumstances. Do you have have you had any experience of overt racism before I have that day? Uh, experience um, that I want to share, but before that, I, I just it, in terms of racism in the medical uh, industry. It took me two and a half years to find, um, coming back to the States to find a primary care doctor because I insisted that she be black and I insisted that she be a, well, I insisted on having a black woman and it took me two and a half years to find it. And when I tell you, I love my doctor, the type of care and attention that she gives to me, the type of validation that she gives to my pain, uh, my physical pain, Mm -hmm. I don't think that I would have had found um, in a white doctor unfortunately um i had a very mm. incident um where the insurance wouldn't cover a procedure and she argued down with them until they did um so i just i mean it's, amazing i absolutely just love her and i just think that re- removing that bias of race from medical um care just improves medical outcomes um so it's very intentional that i did find her and i'm so glad that i did um I'm so glad for you. I'm so, so happy. I will just very quickly share my experience on overt racism. So I grew up in the suburbs of Jersey. Um, It was a very mixed neighborhood. I didn't really have so many overt um, experiences until I went to college. I'll never forget. I was in my last semester, my last month, my last semester of college. So this was May of 2011. Um, And yes, and my friend and I were at a bar. And um, finals just finished. We just finished our exams and we were chilling with my friend and I. We go to a table and there was this group of white men sitting at the table. And we're like, hey, can we sit at the table? Because, you know, like usually if you have a table in a bar or a club, it's because someone purchased it. And they were like, yeah, sure. Yeah, "Yeah, sure. Um, It's actually not our table, but it's this guy's table. Um, But we're sitting here, too. So, yeah, come and sit. So we sit and this, um, like a few minutes later, this big burly white guy comes up to the table and he's drunk and he's the one who purchased the table. And he looks at me and my friend who's um, African-American and was like, you two N words get out of here. This is not your, and mind you, it wasn't wow. the that was sitting there. Like it was these other white guys who, um, who weren't supposed to be there. They were like, you two N words get out of here, blah, blah, blah. So they only picked on the yes. two of you and they left the white yeah. guy stay. And he just starts, he's like, I never forget this. He said, my my great-grandfather owned your great-grandmother. Just I'm just like, wow. Oh, things that people think. I was just like, oh Whoa. my God. Um, and, he, my, and my friend, <laughs> love her to death. Everyone needs a friend like this person. She, a New Yorker, is like, you're not going to talk to me like that. She literally throws her, her glass at him. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what got us kicked out of the club. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so glad she did. Like, God bless her for her quick reaction. What kind of idiot? Throw him out for you know, and he was like, I'm. We're both my friend and I are both very small in stature. I'm five three. I think she's five five. And this man is like six foot, like three hundred and something pounds. Like, could literally take both of us. But they instead decide to throw us out because she threw a drink on him. And I'm glad she did. Um, but it was it really marked um, my experience there because I went to school. It's a predominantly white school, but I did have a lot of black and African even networks. But it was in a very white town. So even if the, even if we had moments of safety in the campus, the surrounding areas were very very racist. Um, it really just marked 
Wait, wait. I just want to know: Did you share with the guys who were kicking you out they what saw, had happened? And they saw like, it. and I think they, they were telling him, like, "Come on!" They were like, "Wow, come on!" Like, they didn't think he was going to be so. They were like, say, "Like, they were like, come on, don't do that, don't say that." But they just kind of like, and they were kind of on our side once we were going to get kicked out. So there are some, like, there are a lot of white allies, right? Like, I think if he had like, yeah, but why did they still yeah, kick you through the drink? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? I'm not so because she threw the, yeah, so, so she threw the drink. Well, that was the very yeah, right it response. It was the very right response. It <laughs> like, was what the very right response. have done? Um, yeah. And the police ended up coming, and then, like, it was just, it was, yeah, it was, Whoa. but again, it just, um, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad she did, because, like, sometimes, and that's why, like, I, I'm not an advocate of violence, but, like, sometimes you just have to be violent, and um, I will end with a quote that I heard last week that my, this same friend sent me. It was this Black woman speaking, and she was like, you guys are talking about Black people looting and Black people, you know, being violent. Black people learn violence from white people in America. We learned from you guys mm-hmm. looting slaves, from you guys looting the land off of Native Americans, mm-hmm. talk about black people doing these things when we learn from you. So that is, yep. that is yep. my experience. Please introduce me to yes. this friend of yours. <laughs> You'll like her. She's a firecracker. <laughs> I'm firecracker. I love the sound of her. Uh... Oh, so gosh. do you want to share your experience on over? Yeah. Yes, I will. So similar to you, like I didn't really experience any overt, overt racism growing up. You know, we both come from pretty privileged backgrounds, pretty sheltered. And, you know, well, firstly, growing up in Nigeria as a child till I was 10 years old, I mean, everybody's black. So there wasn't any there. But then coming to England, I kind of lied that I didn't experience. Definitely coming to boarding school in England, um, and in my year, there were four of us black girls, um, five of us, and we were all Nigerian. And um, we definitely actually were kind of like bullied in my boarding house. I remember my matron, you can imagine 10 year old children. My matron, she used to insult us. Mm-hmm. She used to like just shout at us in front of everyone. Yes, wow. yes. You know, can you imagine like established um, British boarding school where you send your kids to be looked after? This matron, she was she was such a bully, and she used to um like there were two girls who were a bit younger than us, and she used to shout at them so much for doing nothing, doing the same things as the white girls, and you know something small like maybe it was tea time and we had um, donuts, and they would go and grab the donuts before they said the time has started or the before the bell was rung. Oh, you girls were doing it. Um, we will mean white, by the way. <laughs> but no, the two black girls would be shouted at. And I remember, like, me and my um, best friend in my house, Demi, like, yeah, they would tell us off for all sorts, like, to the point where we, we were actually really good friends with, like, all the white girls. But I remember at one point, as we were getting towards the end of our time at that school, so we must have been about 13, we got in, like, a really big fight. Like, it was literally wow. black versus white because the yeah the staff had sort of stoked it by like bullying us and even our friends had said some things and I remember one girl's mom this is a actually my earliest experience of racism we were about to go on a ski trip to Canada and one girl's mom came to school I was 11 and she said to me and this girl was my friend Olivia I remember and the mom said to me when Olivia wasn't there that oh are you going on the ski trip too Rilaki um, Rilaki <laughs> that, yeah, that's going to be like poo on snow. It's going to be, oh, poo on she said, snow. She said this to me. Uh-uh. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh my. Can God. you imagine? So I mean, cause time, let me move on. But can you imagine as a child hearing that? Um, and then in my senior school, so when I was thirteen to eighteen, definitely as black girls, like our friends would ask us stupid things like, "Do you live in trees?" <laughs> and we kind of just let it slide off our backs. But it was there, and the way again our matrons treated us, it was there. And you know, I have some great friendships with um white people from that time who are still my very close friends till this day and one of them reached out to me around this time and obviously so many as we call now white allies but like these things definitely happened and you know sometimes we were too young to process um and then the one example that I would say is like my definite racist experience was when I was in university in Durham again the student body was amazing I, I don't remember any overt issue but once I went shopping and I went into Marks and Spencers, which is um, like a supermarket in England. And this woman came up to me, I was in the jury section and she was like, hey, I just saw you put that um, earring in your handbag and what? put it back. And I was like, huh? Yeah, I was like, what? I was looking at the earrings. I was like, huh? I'm just looking at them. She shouts at me. She was like, no, I just saw what you just did. Put it back. She started shouting at me. Like, Shadi, oh I was God. so shaken that I actually opened my handbag. I opened it and I checked. Like, and I was like, like no, thinking, I didn't did take I it. Maybe you saw it. Like, you were just questioning your own self, right? Yeah. I was questioning myself. And then I even started being apologetic. I was like, oh, maybe it fell, but I didn't um, take anything. Like, can you imagine you start questioning yourself? She was shouting at me. And then she stormed off. She was like, well, <laughs> you can say what you like, but I saw you. She stormed yeah. off. And it was only in a, like a few moments later, I regained consciousness. And I was like, that woman wasn't even wearing wow. a staff uniform. She wasn't even staff. She wasn't even a staff member. Um, anyway, wow. she wasn't even a staff. She was just a random person. And like my housemates at uni were super woke um, white people and, um, you know, amazing people. They all live around the world right now. And I remember they were horrified. But I remember like another friend I told, she was like, oh, maybe, you know, she didn't even acknowledge that it could be a color thing. She was like, oh, maybe it was just because. And I think that's a lot of the issue we have with our white or non-black friends is, they don't feel the pain. They always, not always, sorry, I'm generalizing, but often don't realize that some of these things happen to us and it's just color, just accept that they are bad people yes. who are very, very racist. Yep. And there's a lot of them, but and them not feeling our pain, it hurts more. You know, you go to someone and you confide and they don't get it and that hurts. Um, so yeah, so that is my experience. Um, so we're going to close this section here. Um, and then we have one more quick section and then we're going to end the topic on racism. So this is the final section we're going to have on racism. It's just a few minutes. Um, I think we just both had so much to say. Um, so I'm going to share my final thoughts. Um, then Shadi will share hers. And we might have to continue this discussion another time. So my final thoughts um, are that, you know, racism is um, extremely real. It's extremely hurtful. It hurts um, black people economically, emotionally, on, on so many levels, even medically. And, you know, at the most base level, it hurts whether or not we stay alive, you know. Um, so for me, um, my final thought is that I really want to um, give a charge to anyone who um, does not think racism is a systemic issue to just start doing some reading, um, speak to your black friends, start doing some learning. Because I think this period that we have now during the COVID lockdown is never gonna 
come to us again. We really have a chance now to um, try our hardest to learn, to sympathize, to empathize, and to change. And it's going to take all of us taking it seriously to make sure that it's a, it's a better um, environment for those coming after us, for our children. We don't want to be talking about this again in 30 years. Um, so on that note, I'll share um, some of the things that I have read um, that I think um, are very helpful. So for me, it's, it's fiction. So I read a lot of um, fiction from different cultures, backgrounds. So because today we're talking about racism against Black people, I'm going to share fiction. Oh, Black, you're cutting out. The first one is um, Homegoing. Is the name of the book by Yagi Yassi. Sorry, well, okay, the second well, is Girl, Woman. Cut out for like 20 yeah. seconds. Ah. Ah. Sorry. Okay. Now, all righty. Okay. What do I do? Um, do you? Okay. Yeah. I think I was rambling. I think it's also good because I'll be sorry. short for now. <laughs> Okay, so how do I start this one yeah. again? You said no, we'll come back, but what you said was fine before. Okay, okay, cool. Okay, hopefully it doesn't cut out now. Okay, no, no, thanks for flagging. Okay, we're going into our final okay, three, two, one. We're going into our final section on the racism topic now. We both had so much to say, so we may have to continue this topic another time. We'll both share our final thoughts and um, share some books and places that people can learn more. So my final thought is that this COVID-19 period is a really um, unprecedented time for everybody to engage with the racism topic and George Floyd being killed. It's just a call to action. So my final thought is that everyone, no matter what color you are, but especially um, people who are not of color, um, you know, I'm talking to you, my white friends, my non-black friends. Um, use this time to really um, learn about what's going on and take it seriously. You know, this is truly a systemic issue. It affects people. It affects black people in terms of our health, whether we're going to live or die, in terms of how we're treated by the healthcare, in terms of our job opportunities, our salaries, um, even our education. So, um, yeah, please engage. Um, take what we're saying seriously. Listen. Um, so on that note, I'll share um, some books I've read that have really been um, really brilliant books for me to see how other people have coped with um, racism and also some of the books share some history on racism. I'm not going to go into detail, but these are all fantastic fiction books and you will enjoy them whether or not you take away the learnings on racism or not. They're they are all award-winning books. So the first one I'll share is called Homegoing by Ya Giatti. So just Google homegoing. The second one is called Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. The third is Behold the Dreamers by Imbolo Mbui. And the fourth is White Teeth by Zadie Smith. And the fifth is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And then I'll also suggest you follow some great pages on Instagram, you can actually follow any black person on Instagram and you're going to find lots of other cool black people. But I would suggest you follow. Um, I really like what Edward Enningful is doing, the Vogue editor. Um, and also there's a young white girl. Her name is D-A-S 
Penman. So that's Daz, D-A-S dot Penman. So follow her to learn about how you can engage on these topics. Over to so, you, um, In my closing thoughts, I, I want to say that I really hope all of this um, is a catalyst for change. Um, I remember this week I saw a video of George Foreman's, um, I'm sorry, George Floyd's um, six-year-old daughter, and she was on the video saying that daddy changed the world. And I really do hope that this does change the world. I hope that um, there is unity amongst all people. Um, One of the things that I've seen that I've loved is the unity amongst Black people worldwide, whether it be in London protesting or Paris or even um, in Africa, I've saw I've seen many African leaders speak up about um, about racism in the U.S. I really just hope that it becomes a, a catalyst for change and then also unifies the Black race worldwide. I would like to close. However, um, I would like people to keep the same energy when they think about posting memes that disrespect Black women. Um, I would like people to keep the same energy um, when um, things happen. Uh, when there's discrimination or there's colorism against Black people, Black women in particularly, um, just just don't march when there's a Black man being killed. Uh, march when there's injustice for Black people everywhere, whether it be economically, whether it be medically, whether it be in school. Um, protect, black men protect your Black women. Um, and finally, don't support people who don't support you, whether they be Black or white, because all skin folk ain't kin folk. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I that, love that. I would like to give some recommendations. So I've read some of these books. I haven't read all of them, um, but I have had friends that read some of these books and they recommended it to me. So the first one is called White Fragility. It is by a white woman writing to white people about race um, and racism and race. Um, another is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram um, Kendi. And the last is um, Between the World and Me by Tal Nanisi Coates. Um, I've read this book. It's a heavy read. Um, I'm very much uh, a huge fan of Tal Nanisi Coates. Um, but it's a very heavy read, but I think it's a very important read. Um, so on that, um, we want to thank you for listening this week. It's some very um, heavy topics, um, but um, really important topics and topics that are very relevant. Um, so Relak is going to tell us what you can expect next week. Yeah, so next week will be a bit lighter. Our wildcard topic for next week is dating during coronavirus. And I have a date tomorrow, so I'll be updating you uh, next week. Until, Until next time. Next time.